trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University. We're taking on the grand challenges that face our students, graduates, and higher education is our mission and our passion. Hosted by Mason President Gregory Washington, this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Hello again, Patriots. This is Mason President Gregory Washington welcoming you to another Access to Excellence podcast, where we talk about the grand challenges facing our students, graduates, and higher education. My guest today is Ed Maybach, a university professor and director of Mason's Center for Climate Change Communication. For the past decade, Dr. Maybach's research has focused exclusively on studying the public's understanding of and engagement in climate change. His center applies those social science insights to help society make informed decisions that will help stabilize the Earth's life-sustaining climate and prevent further harm from climate change. Dr. Maybeck has a PhD in communications research from Stanford University. From 2011 to 2014, he was member of the National Climate Assessment Development and Advisory Committee that produced the third national climate assessment. In 2018, Dr. Maybach was appointed fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. With Earth Day coming on April 22nd, I can't think of anyone on our campus more qualified to speak about the ongoing fight to advance the public and those in the corporate world and in government to follow science when it comes to the dangers of climate change and the steps that are needed to mitigate its worst effects. Clearly, opinions are changing. According to the Center for Climate Change Communication, the percentage of people who are alarmed about climate change has gone from 11 to 26% of the population in the last five years. Those who dismiss climate change have reduced from 12 to 7%. Those are promising numbers, but they also indicate that we really got a lot of work to do. Dr. Maybach, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, look, let's just jump right into it. Science tells us that the world as a whole has warmed about 1.2 degrees Celsius since the pre-industrial era. And, you know, as a scientist, we take in that information and we understand that the deltas between the ice age and today's age is not that much. We can also measure sea level rise which is the melting of the Greenland ice sheet, and to understand that chunks of the Antarctic are breaking away from the ice caps. So can you talk to me about how great climate change is in terms of being a threat to the world? Yeah, happy to, Craig. And as you know, I'm not a climate scientist, and that's really warrants saying. We've got some incredible climate scientists at Mason, but but you got me. I'm a, I'm a public health guy, and I'm a communicator scientists. And the reason why I work on climate change as a public health professional is because a little bit of warming can actually have a huge consequence for our health and well-being. So the goal of the world today, as agreed to during the Paris Climate Agreement, our global goal is to limit the warming to no more than two degrees centigrade. The planet has warmed about 1.2 degrees over the past 100, 200 years or so. After the leaders of the world agreed to limit global warming to no more than two degrees, 
the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, did a study and they specifically examined the question, is that safe? Is two degrees of warming safe? And they compared the consequence of two degrees warming versus the consequence of 1.5 degrees. And they concluded that really two degrees will be an overshoot. It would be much safer if the warming were limited to 1.5 degrees and much safer specifically in terms of human health and well-being. And that's why it's so incredibly important, not only for the world to achieve the goal of no more than two degrees, but to actually become more aspirational, more adopt a more ambitious goal of limiting the warming to no more than 1.5 degrees. And you mentioned something earlier. You said, I'm not a climate scientist. I'm a climate communication scientist. To me, that's what we need. That's the part of the problem. The issue is not in the science. The issue is how we help people understand that it, that science and what it means to them directly. So can you talk a little bit about why that seemingly small number is such a significant issue? 1.5 degrees of uh, warmer today, maybe two degrees warmer today. sounds pretty good. It's a little chilly where I am today. But we're talking about the global average across all seasons. And it turns out a little bit of warming on the average worldwide can have huge consequences on specific weather events and even specific hot weather events. So here we are today with 1.2 degrees of warming worldwide over the past couple hundred years, and we're already seeing much more extreme heat waves that are hotter and longer than we did even 50 years ago, even frankly, 30 years ago. Heat's really dangerous. Again, I'm a public health guy. So from the vantage point of a public health professional, I can say unequivocally that heat kills. When we have these extreme heat waves, like we've seen in the US, like we've seen really all over the world over the past couple of decades, people die. It's extremely hard for the human body to stay cool under unusually warm conditions. Why are Americans having such a hard time wrapping their hands around this issue? I quoted you the numbers earlier that basically highlight that people who are alarmed grew from 11 to 26 percent. It's oh, great, it doubled, but it doubled from 11 percent. And that means that there are almost three quarters of the population that's either not alarmed by it or indifferent. And those people are going to carry on doing whatever it is they do. Right. So at 26 percent, it's definitely progress. But we're struggling with this as a community, obviously. Yeah, so let me explain those numbers that you just gave a moment ago. My colleague, uh, Tony Leiseritz at the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication and I in our Center for Climate Change Communication here at Mason, every six months for the past 13 years, we have been conducting a nationally representative public okay. opinion poll. And we use that poll to keep track of, you know, is the public moving in the right direction or the wrong direction, or are they sort of stuck where they are? About seven and a half out of 10 Americans do accept the reality of climate change. Okay. So it's not okay. so much that most Americans don't accept the reality of climate change, really only about two out of 10 even question the reality of climate change. And as you said, this one group that we call the dismissive, about five years ago, they were 12% of America, and now they're down to 7% of America. But the dismissive are one of six segments of Americans. We call them global warming six Americas. 
So in our, we've taken our polling research and we've done audience segmentation analysis, and we've shown that this one group, this most extreme group, extreme in terms of their rejection of the truth of climate science, they have contracted pretty significantly over the past five years. And that's actually kind of an important finding because, as you know, once people's minds are made up, it's pretty hard to get them to change their minds. But even the most extreme group of Americans in terms of climate rejection, they are actually on the decline and pretty sharply so. On the other end of the global warming six Americas continuum is a group that we call the alarmed segment. And they too feel really strongly about the issue, just like the dismissive do. And they're the group that has grown, as you said, over the past five or six years, they've grown from 11% of the public to 26% of the public. And that's more than doubling over the course of the past five years. And we think that's a really important change. We think both of those changes are very important. One, because the dismissive are really quite pissed off, frankly, and quite vocal about proposals to use federal or government resources to address climate change, because they don't believe climate change is real or human cause or certainly not a serious problem. And there's a real deep sense of skepticism about government intervention in the marketplace. And so they think that anything government might propose will actually just make our country worse. The alarmed, on the other hand, they're deeply convinced that human-caused climate change is a reality. They are deeply concerned about it. But almost two-thirds of Americans are worried about climate change. This just happens to be the group that's most worried. And unlike the other Americans who are worried about it, this is the group, the alarmed, that has grown to 26%. This is the group who is most likely to be taking action, the kind of action that will actually help America move forward and embrace the kinds of solutions that will make a difference. Have you broken this out by political party? And the reason I bring this up is because we've gone through four years of Donald Trump. It's no mistake that he was not a climate change believer. It's very, very interesting that individuals on the conservative side of the House tend to be very, very vocal in their disbelief of climate change. But we've just experienced some really tough four years relative to the disasters that that had fallen upon not just our planet, but the country. At some point in time, when your communities are burning, when your communities are flooding, when you have large numbers of biblical-like floods in the country over a short period of time, Ellicott City, Maryland has had two in the last 10 years, two once in a 500-year flooding event. You know, I was in California when we had the Northern California fires that just decimated whole communities. And it is very, very difficult to maintain a worldview that everything is okay with your climate when you just see that level of devastation. And so I can see why people are switching. But then there's this political nature of this. You know, if a large percentage of that 7% are in one party and that party's in power, it kind of nullifies the fact that that group has shrunk. You get what I'm saying? I sure do. Um, (laughs) have 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 you looked at that? Oh, yes, we've absolutely looked at that. And the single factor that best predicts which of the six Americas a given individual will fall into is, in fact, their political ideology. 
So liberal Democrats are disproportionately likely to be alarmed, and conservative Republicans are way disproportionately likely to be dismissive, or the group next to them, which we call the doubtful. And so, yeah, it's really entirely regrettable that here we are in 2021, and we have a political divide, a deep political divide in America, which it is what it is. So we got to dig our way out of this hole. But the fact that climate change, an issue of science, an issue that we know to be true or a threat that we know to be true as a result of careful patient science conducted over many decades, the fact that that issue has been entrained in this culture war that we are, I don't want to say trapped in in America, because I believe we can get ourselves out of this culture war, but the culture war and climate science, unfortunately, are in a very close relationship at the moment. And our Republican, our conservative brethren, they have been fed a bill of goods over many, many decades, a bill of goods about the unreality or the lack of scientific proof behind human-caused global warming. As a communication scientist, I'm now almost finished my fourth decade as a communication scientist. I can't believe it, but it's true. But the one thing that I have learned more definitively than anything else in those four decades is that public education campaigns or public communication campaigns that work And by work, I mean that influence the way the public thinks and feels about an issue. They all sort of comport to one formula. And that formula, Greg, is successful public communication campaigns always feature simple, clear messages repeated often by a variety of trusted voices. Okay, all three of those components, simple, clear messages, the message repetition and the trusted voices, they're all really important in determining whether or not a public communication campaign will succeed. And the forces in our society that don't want us to step up and do the right thing to address climate change, they have been at the business of misinforming the American people for a very long time. They have been in the climate misinformation game much longer than the climate science community has been in the climate information game. And we both know that he or she who speaks first tends to be remembered longest. So the fact that they got into the game earlier, the fact that they learned from the tobacco industry how to play the game well, all of that means they really have had an upper hand in shaping public understanding of the issue. You mentioned the past administration. I don't remember if you named Donald Trump by name or not, but Donald Trump is really a master at simple, clear messages repeated often through his trusted voice. And by bringing his trusted voice to an issue, he managed to convince lots of other trusted conservative voices in America to also embrace the simple, clear messages that he was conveying. He was just a Johnny-come-lately in this misinformation war. It's been going on for a very long time, and they're really, really good at it. So you talk a little bit about this whole concept of communications. Let's talk a little bit about Earth Day. Earth Day, in my opinion, really started as a form of protest. Here's the story as I understand it. So in 1969, at a UNESCO conference in San Francisco, there was a peace activist by the name of John McConnell who actually proposed the day to honor the earth and the concept of peace. And that day was supposed to be observed on March 21st, 1970. 
That was the first day of spring in the Northern Hemisphere that year. So that entity was sanctioned by the Secretary General at the United Nations. A month later, Senator Gaylord Nelson proposed the idea to hold a national environmental teaching around this concept on April 22nd, 1970. He hired a young activist by the name of Dennis Hayes to be the national coordinator. And Nelson and Hayes renamed that event Earth Day. They took the idea, they grew it beyond the concept of a teaching to include the whole U.S. And on that day, April 22nd, 1970, more than 20 million people poured out into the streets. And the first Earth Day still remains the single largest protest day in human history. In preparation for this event, I went out and started doing my research on Earth Day. You talk about messages, simple, clear messages. So I'm looking at all this stuff. And what do I see? Celebrate Earth and Arbor Day by quilted northern toilet paper. I see Earth Day supplies and great deals at Oriental Trading. I see it's Starbucks Earth Month. I mean, they just took the whole thing over. I mean, so has this commercialization watered things down to a certain degree? Earth Day is really not about saving the Earth. If things go really bad, if we go to three degrees or above two degrees, the Earth will still revolve around the sun 365 days a year. We just won't be here. It's really about saving ourselves. And somehow that message gets lost. We get into this thing of save the earth. Let's do good by the earth. Nature has a way of coming back at us when we get it out of equilibrium. And so can you talk a little bit about this from a communication standpoint? You know, I think you're making a couple of really important points, Greg. But I'm not sure I think it's a bad thing that some of the big corporations in America and around, and around the world are embracing Earth Day. I mean, on one hand, you could say that that's trivializing the importance of Earth Day. On the other hand, you could say it's mainstreaming the importance of Earth Day. They feel that they've got to come out and openly embrace it themselves in order to not appear or not be out of touch with what our values are. I actually look to corporate America, and I'm not alone, actually. Our, our surveys show that when we ask people how much should the following people or groups do? How much should they be doing to address global warming? And the one group, the one sort of sector of our of our society that most can say need to be doing more is corporations and big businesses. So we actually feel that we expect leadership from the business sector, the private sector, even more than from the public sector, from government. I think that what I'm seeing is some real leadership coming out of corporate America. Microsoft is a company that's actually blowing me away with how aspirational they are being. They plan to not only become a net zero company, they plan to become a net negative company by 2040. Let me just unpack that for you. They are planning to eliminate their entire carbon footprint of their entire operation by 2040 or maybe 2045. That's so incredibly ambitious. Talk about a big, hairy, audacious goal. And Microsoft has the wherewithal to get it done. And by committing to it, they are really pretty much guaranteeing that other aspirational companies will follow in their footsteps. So I think it's really good to have some of the country's biggest, most prominent corporations stepping up and saying, hey, we're going to do this. We hope the 
rest of you will follow. Because I think that when Microsoft does it, I actually think they're going to develop new technologies, new techniques that make it easier for all of us to do it, for our country to do it, for our state of Virginia to do it, for the business in our state to do it. And that's super exciting to me. Can you talk a little bit about what it truly means to be net zero? Does it mean it just got to stop using energy? Help the audience understand. So net zero essentially means a company or a university. We, as you know, all too well, we've committed to be net zero by uh, 2050. I actually encourage you as our president to become even more ambitious, more aspirational and, and move the data up for us to be net zero, meaning no emission of heat trapping pollution as a result of our operations. So net zero simply means that in the totality of an organization's operations, it is no longer emitting heat trapping pollution. Outstanding. And net negative in Microsoft's case, that means they will have to use both natural technologies like tree planting, as well as almost certainly technological solutions to capture the heat trapping pollution that we've already put into the atmosphere. And that's important not only for Microsoft to do that, frankly, it's super important for all of humanity to do that because we are already at a about 420 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, where we started before we started burning so much fossil fuel to run our economy was more like 280 parts per million. So that really needs to be our goal. And we don't get from 420 back to 280 unless we figure out how to harvest a whole lot of that heat trapping pollution that's already in the atmosphere and either put it back in the ground where it came from and where it belongs or to turn it into solid product. I'm actually a huge cyclist. I covet a carbon fiber bicycle frame, but I'm holding off to buy that carbon fiber bicycle frame until that carbon fiber is produced by sequestered carbon from the atmosphere and turned into a bicycle for me. That will be a very happy day in my life when I can buy that bicycle. You're really now getting down to the brass tacks, right? This is really a sacrifice, a commitment that those more developed economies are going to have to make literally at the expense of some of the developing economies. Part of my reason for asking that question is involved in your answer. We can afford to make certain changes. They might not be comfortable changes. They could be expensive changes, but they're probably changes that those who can make should make because not everybody, even in our country, can make those changes. So those folk who can go to electric automobiles, those folk who can install solar panels on their homes, all of those are costly endeavors, significantly costly endeavors. But what I hear you saying is that that is a commitment that some consumers can make. But if enough of us do make those commitments, we will position ourselves in order to give the country more time in order for others to get on board as well. In America and in much of the world, we've had public policy that assumes that fossil fuels are the better solution for our energy needs and has privileged fossil fuel companies and fossil fuels themselves as a result of that assumption. Well, that assumption is now antiquated and we need to update our public policies to make sure that for individuals like me and you, that it is easier for us to run our lives, our homes, our automobiles, whatever we need energy for, we need to make it easier for ordinary people to make the right choice. 
I actually live in Maryland, and in Maryland, we have a policy that allows for something called community solar. Community solar is essentially building a large-scale solar plant somewhere, not in my neighborhood, because we don't have enough free space in my neighborhood, but in neighborhoods not so far from where I live, they can now develop these large-scale solar plants, and I can buy my electricity from these community solar facilities. And because of the very smart decisions by the part of the legislature, in Maryland, it actually cost me less than what I used to pay for fossil fuel driven energy. 5% less in my case, if I were a low or middle income household, it would be 10% less. So in Maryland, we've got this enlightened policy that privileges the development of clean energy and makes it easy for average Joes like me to take advantage of it. Because I actually live in a very deeply shady place. I could put solar on my roof. I just don't get very much sun up there. How important is it that the U.S. is back in the Paris Climate Agreement? Oh, it is so important. Um, We are the only nation in the world that walked away from the Paris Climate Agreement. As a public health professional, I think the Paris Climate Agreement is the world's most important public health initiative. Because if we don't limit the warming, global warming, to two degrees or less, ideally 1.5 degrees or less, we will unleash a series of public health catastrophes that will continue to play out for generations to come. And all of that incredible gain that we've made in the field of public health worldwide over the past 100 years, gains driven by sanitation, but also driven by vaccinations and other fundamental public health contributions, all of those gains will be wiped out and more if we don't limit the warming to the extent possible. So the fact that we are walked away from the Paris Climate Agreement, the fact that we were the only country in the world that did it, to me, was a real national tragedy and a national shame. I think we will be living with that shame for a very long time unless we not only walk back in as we have, but meet our obligations. We have an obligation to not only be in, but to actually do as much as we can to get to maximize the rate at which we create a net zero economy, a carbon pollution free economy, but we have to help as many other countries as we can do the same. Leadership, bold leadership is inspirational. We humiliated our country by walking away from our obligations, but if we now lean in and we're bold leaders and we inspire other countries to be bold as well, I think we can once again walk around with our head up high. And that is what we really need to do. And I couldn't be more proud of President Biden and Vice President Harris, because I think they've built an incredible team to do exactly that. They've committed to doing exactly that. And they've shown an incredible sophistication in their understanding that it's not just about climate change, and it's not just about our economy, and it's not just about our health, but it's also about social justice. And they are treating these four challenges as inextricably interrelated, as in fact, they are. I feel like we here at Mason, we are now starting to recognize the inextricable interrelationship between sustainability and human health and computing and data science and the initiative that you've brought to us and you are helping to lead, the Anti-Racism and Inclusive Excellence Initiative. These are four sets of incredible opportunities that we at Mason can help contribute to. And the more that we see them as inextricably linked, I believe the more progress we're going to make faster. At some point in time, I want to sit down with you and take you up on this issue of how we can be more aggressive as a campus from a climate perspective. So stay tuned for that conversation. 
Excellent. So tell me a little about your center, the Center for Climate Change Communication, and how you get the message out and how you try to change minds. I'm told that you have this story of three legs of a stool. I love to have that question put to me because it's my favorite topic of conversation. So we like to think of ourselves at the Center for Climate Change Communication as a think and do tank. In other words, yes, we do research. That's the thinking part. But we also are equally committed to doing, to actually identifying opportunities to help Americans wrap their heads around climate change, to better understand the realities of the threat the current harms that it's creating, the threat that it poses to our future and our children and our grandchildren's future, but also to better understand the profound opportunities that we have right here within our reach right now to implement solutions that will not only create a better future, but they will create a better today as well. So in our center, we do the research, like the research I talked about earlier, the climate change in the American mind surveys and the global warming six Americas audience segmentation analysis. Doing that research reveals to us way important insights into why people are struggling to understand the issue and what we collectively, not just we at our center, but what we collectively across America can do to help Americans better understand the issue and become more aligned with, more supportive of the solutions that will really make a difference, which in my view is almost always putting in place smart policies rather than the dumb policies that we have in place right now, which are contributing to the production of heat trapping pollution. So the first leg of the stool is our research, both polling research and message testing research. The second leg of our stool, actually all of the other legs of our stool, there's more than three now. There's at least four, maybe five. And frankly, we've built a stool that can have as many legs as we're capable of producing because <laughs> the, more, the more legs on this stool, the better. But the second leg of our stool would be our first major public education initiative. The insight to develop this program that we call Climate Matters came from our very first national survey. We asked people, how much do you trust various different sources or voices in America with regard to global warming. Because remember I said, simple, clear messages repeated often by a variety of trusted voices. So we wanted to make sure we knew who the trusted voices were. They told us they trust TV weathercasters like way up there as a top tier, top most trusted source of information about global warming. And we thought that was so interesting, but more importantly, a TV weathercaster here in the Washington area named Joe Witte. He thought it was so interesting that when he saw our polling results, he picked up the phone and he called me. Wow. Uh, and, and he introduced himself to me. And I was kind of excited that Joe Witte, for God's sakes, a guy I watched on TV for the past 10 years, telling me what the weather was going to be like tomorrow. Joe was calling me. And what he wanted to tell me is he said, Ed, I just learned something really important from you that I am a potentially trusted voice about global warming. And what you probably don't know, I actually have incredible entree to the public. He laid out a premise for me in response to our very first survey, which is that he and his 2,000 colleagues around the country, the TV weather men and women around the country, they could play an invaluable role in helping Americans see climate change as 
something that was already happening and creating problems in their backyard. We knew from our first survey that most Americans accepted climate change as real, but they saw it as a distant problem, distant in space and time and species. And so here's this TV weathercaster, Joe Witte, coming to me with this beautiful idea. And he and I formed a partnership. And we went and we got a third partner, a nonprofit organization called Climate Central in Princeton. And we wrote an NSF grant proposal together to explore whether or not Joe's intuition was important. Was there any there there, any really potential to activate TV weathercasters as local climate educators? And I am happy to tell you, Joe was spot on. His instincts were exactly right. Today, with our Climate Matters program, we currently support 998 TV weathercasters around America with localized information about how climate change is changing conditions in their community. I haven't seen the latest numbers, but the rate at which TV weathercasters are airing climate stories has increased by more than 50-fold over the past seven years as a result of this program. Do they believe it? In 2010, when we started, they were less likely to accept the realities of human-caused climate change than was the average American. But today, because of this program, because we have created an ongoing dialogue between climate scientists and TV weathercasters, and we have mounted a sustained educational campaign for TV weathercasters, they are 95% on board now. It was 50% in 2010. Now, 11 years later, it's 95%. They are a perfect case study of the fact that you actually can do science communication in ways that really make a difference. They've become this profound, local, highly trusted source of climate information in their communities across America. And a big part of that increase that we talked about, the fact that the dismissive are decreasing and the alarmed are rapid rapidly increasing, I actually give credit to, and we've published papers that the data gives credit to TV weathercasters as one of the really important trusted voices in America that is helping to make that happen. So that's the second stool. The third stool has a name, and his name is Bob Inglis, former Republican. Yeah, this is the one Republican I was just Congress. getting ready to ask you about. Oh, perfect, perfect. Well, so Bob Inglis was a Republican member of Congress, uh, Greensville, Spartanburg, South Carolina, in 2009. As a conservative Republican, he introduced legislation in the U.S. House of Representatives, a climate solutions legislation, and it cost him his job because. On his next primary in the spring of 2010, he had not one, not two, not three, but four primary challengers, all of whom were equally conservative to Bob. Bob is a very conservative person, but all of whom were just rabid climate deniers and all of whom were funded by dark money. In other words, Bob showed the bad judgment as a Republican member of the U.S. House of Representatives of acknowledging the truth about climate change that he thought was consistent with his values and his belief in the power of the marketplace to solve our problems. And it cost him his job. And I met him a couple of months after he left Congress. And when I heard that he wasn't going to walk away from this with his tail between his legs, he was going to lean into it. He was going to make lemonade out of lemons by educating his fellow Republicans and fellow conservative Americans about the reality of climate change and convince them that being on the wrong side of climate science is bad for the party, bad for the nation and bad for the world. 
I invited him to come and join us at our center. And uh, initially, he didn't accept our invitation. He wanted to run his public education initiative by Republicans for Republicans out of a Republican organization, the Jack Kemp Foundation. But eventually, he realized he had made a mistake. He realized that Mason was actually a better home for him to run a program like this because Mason was broad and deep in climate sciences. And he didn't want to be solely in a political organization. He wanted to be in a science organization that has policy studies, that has climate science, that has legal scholars and economists. And he realized that was the better place. So that's the third leg of our school. He calls it, quite fittingly, Republic N. E-N. He's been doing this at Mason since 2012 or 2013. And uh, I'm just so proud of him and his team of young Republicans who have been unabashedly optimistic about conservative Americans' ability to walk away from the misinformation that they've been served up in heaping doses over many decades and actually lean into the science and truly be the party of ideas and bring the best solutions forward. And to watch Bob and his colleagues work, it's just really a joy. I'm so proud to be their colleague. I am not a conservative, as you might have figured out, but it's wonderful to be able to lock arms with conservatives and watch them do outreach to their people in much the same way that TV weathercasters are doing outreach to their audience. And then there's a fourth leg of the stool, if you'll allow me one more minute. We decided we want to organize the voice of medicine and of nursing and of public health in America because my motivation for working on climate change is because it represents the biggest threat to our health and well-being that I'm aware of. And I wanted to see, could we organize my people, health professionals around America, to become yet another form of public education? The polls show that health professionals are the most trusted profession in America. And our polls show that the public would like to learn about the health impacts of climate change from health professionals. So we've organized something called the Medical Society Consortium on Climate and Health. We now have 32 national medical societies who are members of this consortium. And we have helped to organize about 15 different state groups like the Virginia Clinicians for Climate Action, who already had a profound impact in terms of working with Virginia's legislature and governor to put in place much smarter climate and health policies than we had in the past. How do you walk the walk? So what's your carbon footprint like and what do you do as an individual and as a family? (laughs) <laughs> the coronavirus pandemic has dramatically reduced my uh, my carbon footprint because I've stopped flying for professional reasons. And you want to know what? I'm going to make that a more or less permanent change in the way I work now that I know I can be as effective, if not more effective, via teleworking or uh, Zoom calls than flying around to talk to people. So that's new. And I, I do hope that sticks with me. I hope it sticks with you. And I, I actually have sort of a prediction that we really will change the way we do business travel in ways that dramatically lighten our collective carbon footprint. My heating and AC needed replacing recently. And my wife and I, we talked about it and we decided to spend a little extra money and we replaced the whole shebang heating and AC with a geothermal unit. Ah. So we derive much of our heating and our AC from the ambient temperature of the ground beneath our home. And the electricity needed to run that geothermal unit, we're buying now clean solar electricity from a, a community solar farm not so far from our house. So, you know, we walk the walk, but we walk it because A, we're fortunate, we can afford to, and B, because I live in the state of Maryland, which has really been leaning in to develop smart carbon and health-friendly public policies. But I think that's irrelevant 
in a sense. What I do in my own life isn't relevant to what I'm trying to help the world do. But if I do my job well, I'm going to make it easier for every family in America and every family around the world to make the right choice because it's going to become the more affordable and easier choice. That's what smart public policy does. It makes the right choice, the choice that's good for us collectively, the easier and more affordable choice. One final question. What do you tell our students? How can they make a difference and what part should they play in all of this? Greg, that is such a great question. And my answer to it is I try to honor the wisdom that my father passed to me, which is that people respond best to advice if they ask you for it. So I try to tread lightly with regard to what I tell students. But students who ask me, I tell them that, look, if this is an issue that you are as concerned about as I am, you should pick a profession through which you can address this problem. But even if you don't feel that you can choose such a profession, like mechanical engineering, for example, or electrical engineering, you still should be thinking about what can I do to use my profession to help become part of the solution. So if your destiny is law school, in law school, make sure you learn enough about energy law energy policy to make sure that you are on the right side of energy decisions so that you are helping our country and our world implement smart public policies. And then finally, I tell them, be unyielding. If you are as concerned about this as I am, and many of the students I meet at Mason are, I say, be unyielding. Don't compromise. Look at what Greta Thunberg has accomplished in the past three years. Our research has shown Greta has awoken many Americans to the issue of climate change, and she gives us hope. She gives us a sense of belief that together we can lock arms and make a difference. We can convince our policymakers to implement smart policies. And just finally, I want to give a tip of the hat to a nine-year-old friend of mine. She's a friend because we have a Twitter relationship and she trolled me until I would sign her petitions. This young lady named Madhvid Chitor, she is a fierce climate advocate who creates petitions to try to petition our legislators for smart climate policies. And she is building a following for these policy proposals that a nine-year-old is developing. It is so inspiring to me. And if the nine-year-old's climate advocacy can inspire me, I know that Mason undergraduates and Mason graduate students' advocacy can inspire me. And it does all the time. All I can say is, while we got a lot of work to do, I am so incredibly proud and thankful that we have people like you at the helm helping to lead in this effort. I cannot think of a more important issue for our students to focus on. So Ed Maybach, Director of Mason Center for Climate Change Communication, I want to thank you for a most fascinating and important discussion. Until next time, this is Mason President Gregory Washington saying follow the science and stay safe, Mason Nation. If you like what you heard on this podcast, go to podcast.gmu.edu for more of Gregory Washington's conversations with the thought leaders, experts, and educators who take on the grand challenges facing our students, graduates, and higher education. That's podcast.gmu.edu.